As you know, a couple of weeks ago, we started a series called Messy. The idea is that uh, life can be messy and love can be hard. And when we started that series, I had no idea just how messy life could get or how difficult it can be to love your neighbor. The series is based on that command, love your neighbor as yourself. And it takes us through uh, many of the times that we see in Scripture that where that command appears. You know, many of the commands that we have just show up one or two times in the Old Testament law. This one shows up in the Old Testament law, but then it shows up again in, in the Gospels, and it shows up in Paul's letters, and we see it throughout Scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so each week we are looking at one of the times that it occurs and we're trying to get a sense of the context and and what's happening at that time. And and as we do that, we're able to, to see it from a different perspective. We're able to look at all the different facets of what it is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this morning, I, I want us to uh, continue that thought especially given the recent um, experience that our, our nation has, has gone through, not just the pandemic, but how we've responded to it. 21st century Americans have become experts at dividing ourselves and finding things to fight about. Every aspect of life and every decision we make is driven by politics. We're arguing over masks. We're arguing over how fast we should open the economy. We're arguing over whose fault it is. This week, those on the right and those on the left started arguing over semantics and fighting over when people should return to their church buildings. Our leaders on both sides of the aisle have turned, the, have turned church attendance into partisan politics. And folks, there's a problem there. The church is not a pawn to be used in political games. And you and I need to make sure that we're doing what we can do to remain the church. Everyone around us is going to be pulling us because Because you have always voted in a particular way, you must see the world this way. Because you have voted for a particular person, you must see the world this way. And we're pulled back and forth. You say, say, well, not me. I'm not that political. I'm not pulled one way or the other. I'll bet you that if you tell me how you voted in the last election, I can tell you which channel you watched the news on. Everything we think and everything we do today is driven by some kind of loyalty to one side or the other. And that is just the world in which we live. Because that's the world in which we live, we need to acknowledge that life is messy. And we need to acknowledge that loving our neighbor is not always easy. So while people are taking sides and they're turning against each other, questioning motives, making unfounded accusations, anger and arrogance abound, in the midst of all this, 
we hear Jesus say again, love your neighbor as yourself. While everyone else is fighting over the church, I say let the church be the church. Ignore the politics. Recognize that Jesus is the head of the church. We are his body. We are in the business of building his kingdom. So we need to do whatever it is he tells us to do, especially when he tells us, love your neighbor as yourself. And it is within that context, with that backdrop, that I want us to go to a, a, a story that is familiar to you. I want us to look again at Matthew chapter 19. And we're going to begin at verse 17. This is the story that you and I grew up calling the rich young ruler. It's interesting that nowhere in, in the Gospels do we have that title for him. But the story appears in three different Gospels. And it is when you take... Clues from this gospel and clues from this one and clues from that one. When you put all those clues together, it is then that you're able to say, oh, this guy was a rich, young ruler. And so that's what we've always called him. And I want us to look at that this morning. In Matthew chapter 19, we're going to begin in verse 16. Behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And most of us uh, growing up in, um, in a Christian environment, most of us understand that there's a problem in his question. When he says, what good deed must I do, then we immediately react to that, don't we? We say, what deed must you do to, to get life? You, you, you can't do anything to, to earn life. But remember who he is and remember when he's speaking. When he is having this conversation with Jesus, it's long before the Holy Spirit ever showed up in, in, the, in that personal way in which he fills believers. And it is long before the gospel was ever proclaimed. Jesus is just now beginning to establish his kingdom. And he's just now beginning to train his disciples in what that kingdom looks like and how it works. And so this man is coming with all he's ever known. And all he has ever known is you keep the law and you'll be okay with God. You do the right things in order to please God. And so he comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, not only is there a, a problem theologically when he says, what do I have to do? But isn't it interesting that he uses a singular, what good deed? What's the one thing? <laughs> right? And you and I both know that the law has many commands in it. He is looking for that one last thing. He, he feels like he has got his life so together that, that he's done everything he's supposed to do, but he knows something's missing. I believe that he is sincere. I believe this rich young ruler is a very good person who has done very good things. I think to the best of his ability, he really has kept God's law as a way of glorifying God. But he still senses that something's missing. And so he says to Jesus, what's, 
What's the one thing that's missing? What's the deed that I have to do that I haven't done? Something's not right. And so he says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Verse 17, Jesus said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. Jesus says, why are you talking good? There's only one who's good and you're not him. In other words, he's saying, you, you're, even though you think you've kept all the rules, you can't be good. There's only one who's good and that's God. And I think implied in Jesus' question is, he's saying, isn't it interesting that you talk to me about good because there's only one good and that's God and I am he, therefore I am good. It's kind of ironic now, don't you think, that you're coming to me to ask me about good because I am the source of good. I'm the only way you can find it. He says then in, uh, in 17, why do you ask me? about what is good. There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He tells the young man what the young man has heard his whole life. If you're going to live, you have to keep the commandments. Now what Jesus knows and what the young man is about to find out is that while that statement is true, if you want life, keep the commandments. While that's true, there is a purpose for the commandments, for the law, and that is to prove to you that you can't keep them. It is true, if you could keep every law, if you could obey every jot and tittle of the law, you would have life. Reality is, none of us have ever or could ever keep every jot and tittle of the law. It's impossible. That's the role of the law in the first place. The law is here so that you can see, if I'm going to please God, I've got to do all these things. I know those would please him, but I just can't do all of those. And when you finally say, I can't do all of those, you are in exactly the place the law wanted you to be. Because now you realize that you are a sinner in need of grace. The law's job is to prepare you to understand grace. And so he says to the guy, you want to live? Keep, the, keep the, the commandments. Do the law. Now, what the young man doesn't know yet is it's impossible. So in verse 18, he said to him, which ones? There's a, there's a whole law out there. Started with the 10 big ones, and then God gave more of the law, and then the teachers and the, and the religious leaders and the, and, and the scholars added to that Old Testament law, they added regulations that would protect people. So here's a law. Well, how do I apply that today? Well, here's some more regulations that will help you apply that law so you don't get too close to breaking that law. So now we've got the 10, we've got the law, and we've got all these regulations to help us keep the law. And so this guy says, which one of them? <laughs> he, he doesn't yet fully understand. You see, he's making a mistake that many people make today. Even today, we're, many people make the same mistake. 
And that is thinking that if I can do enough good to outweigh my bad, then I'll be okay. I've done bad. I recognize it. I acknowledge it. I have, mis- I have made mistakes. I have failed. So in order to make, that, make it up to God, to get back on his good side, I've got enough good to outweigh the bad. And a whole lot of people are stuck in that way of thinking. That's where this young man was. So what he's saying is, out of all those laws and rules and regulations, Jesus, which ones are the heavy ones so I can do the heavy ones to make sure that I get that balance right? Which ones do I have to keep, he said in verse 18. And Jesus gives him a list. By the way, before we get to the list, as as we're thinking about that question, which ones, don't forget James chapter 2 and verse 10. James 2 and 10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You don't get to pick and choose. That was the young man's mistake. Hey, give me, give me the heavy ones. I'll do the heavy ones and I'll let the little ones go because all I got to do is outweigh it. James teaches us that if you break even one, even the little one, you broke the whole law. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so then it is that, that Jesus says, all right, I'll give you a list. You want to know which ones? I'll give you a list. And he says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Do any of those sound familiar? You remember the Big Ten? The Ten Commandments have four that deal with our relationship to God. The first four of the Ten Commandments talk about our relationship to God. Then there are six commandments that talk about our relationship with each other, how we're supposed to treat each other. So when the guy says, which ones do I need to really focus on? Jesus lists the commands of the Big Ten that deal with one another. So he says, don't don't kill anybody. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, but that's only five. He left one of them out. One of the Ten Commandments that he left out is thou shalt not covet. You see, he was setting the guy up for a learning opportunity because he knew that this young man wanted to be able to say, check, 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 got it. I did them. And so Jesus intentionally leaves out the one of the six that the man could not honestly say, I've done it. This was a rich young man and he loved his wealth. He was was guilty of that coveting command. So Jesus leaves that out. Instead, he adds this one. Honor your father and mother, verse 19, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He took out the one that the guy knew he couldn't just check off and forget about. And he added instead, love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man in verse 20 said to him, all these I've kept 
what do I still lack? He said, I've done those. I, I can check them off. Check them off, check them off. But something's still lacking. And so Jesus takes him through a process by which he helps the young man realize that he has indeed not kept all of those because he has not yet fulfilled that last one. Love your neighbor as yourself. He thought he had. He thought he had loved people. But what he's about to learn is the command that Jesus did not list about coveting, about wanting more and more stuff. The fact that he broke that commandment meant that he also broke love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is about to unfold that for him and he's going to show it to him. So in 20, he says, I've kept all of those, but something is still lacking. What am I missing? What, what's, what's not connecting? And so Jesus shows him that he hasn't loved his neighbor in verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, this does not mean that in order to be saved, you have to sell all your stuff. What it does mean is that Jesus very well might say to you, there's something in your life that is distracting you, pulling you away from me. You need to take care of that thing that's pulling you away from me, and then you need to follow me. That was the conversation with the young man. He said, I did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. Love your neighbor, got it. And Jesus said, no, you haven't loved your neighbor because you love money more than people. Prove that you love your neighbor, sell your stuff, and take care of people. Love your neighbor in a way that's real, and then you come follow me. He showed him that he had not yet kept that last commandment. And so in verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Man, what a terrible way to end a story. I like a happy ending, don't you? I like happy endings. I mean, my house is full of Hallmark happy endings. The TV is on Hallmark or Little House on the Prairie almost all the time. I mean, we love happy endings. What a sad ending to the story. Jesus helped the guy work through it mentally. So he understood it. He finally got it. The one thing that's been missing for you is you love stuff more than you love God. Therefore, you're not loving people because you don't love God. So you're not loving your neighbor. The guy, I think, finally got it. He understood what he had been missing. And what does he do? Instead of saying, Jesus, forgive me, help me leave my possessions behind, I'll sell it, I'll do what you tell, I will be obedient to my Lord, and I'll follow you. Instead, he said, I love my stuff too much. And he walked away. It says, because he had great possessions. I think the possessions had him too. He walked away because he couldn't give them up. And what a sad thing. Because he left with a lot of stuff. 
but imagine the treasures he left behind when he walked away. And so Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's one of the ways that you demonstrate you're following me. One of the ways you prove you are who you say you are, who you think you are. And so with that in mind, we need to ask three questions very quickly, and we're, we're, uh, we're on the home stretch. But we need to ask three questions about that commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who am I supposed to love? We talked about it um, a week or two ago. Who am I supposed to love? The Good Samaritan learned, or with the story of the Good Samaritan, the lawyer learned that we're to love whoever is around us. Our neighbor is whomever we come in contact with. Our neighbor is that person next to us in need. Who am I supposed to love? My neighbor. What am I supposed to do? Love your neighbor. It's not enough to tolerate them. It's not enough to avoid being mean to them. It's a command to do something. Isn't that interesting? The command to love is a command to do something. It's not a command to don't do something. It's not show love by not being mean. Show love by not acting. No, it's show love by doing something. Do love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so we've talked about what that love looks like. And I'm going to show it to you again because I, I want to just keep reiterating. I want this to get ingrained in us. The definition of love. Love is the voluntary, sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another. Does anybody have that memorized yet? Keep working. I want you to get that down. Because the world defines love in the wrong way almost every time we turn around. Love is the voluntary, sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another. It's voluntary. I choose to love you. I decide to do that. It's sacrificial. I'm willing to give up my comfort. I'm willing to give up my, my rights. I'm willing to give up something to make sure you're okay. And it's a commitment. I'm going to see this through. I voluntarily sacrificially choose to commit myself to your well-being. That's what love is all about. And so the third question, how am I supposed to love my neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. You take care of self. When you're hungry, you feed self. When it's time to go to sleep, you put self to bed. You clothe self. Thank you for doing that, by the way. You take care of self. So if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you care for, you take care of your neighbor the same way you would take care of yourself. Spurgeon says it so beautifully. He says everything so beautifully. But here he says, you may love yourself as much as you please, but take care that you love your neighbor as much. You certainly need no exhortation to love yourself. Your own case will be well seen to. Your own comfort will be a primary theme of your anxiety. There is no need to exhort you to love yourself. You'll do that well enough. See to it then that as much as you love yourself, you also love your neighbor. 
So you're going to watch out for your own well-being. You're going to watch out then for your neighbor's well-being as well. You love your neighbor as self. As we're trying to return to normal life, we all have a lot of decisions to make. Seems like every day there's, there's more decisions that we have to make. As we make those decisions, I want to encourage you, instead of looking out for number one and being motivated by my rights, my preferences, my opinions, and my comfort, when you have to make decisions, let's be motivated by love for those around us. How can I commit myself to the well-being of my neighbor instead of always fighting for my rights. What's best for my neighbor? How can I be loving to him or her? Because you see, love is not easy. And sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's not fair. On January 13, 1982, Air Florida Flight 90 crashed into the Potomac. Ice on the wings prevented the plane from having a successful takeoff. And almost all of the passengers died. The few that survived struggled in the icy river as rescuers tried to reach them. Five times a helicopter dropped a rope to save Arland D. Williams Jr. And five times Williams passed the rope to other passengers in worse shape than he. When the rope was extended to Williams the sixth time, he was too weak to take hold, and he succumbed to the frigid waters. His heroism was not a last-minute decision. It was not a rash choice. Aware of his own strength was fading. He deliberately handed hope to someone else. The bridge near where he died has now been named the Arlen D. Williams Jr. Memorial Bridge. He demonstrated voluntary, sacrificial commitment to the well-being of others. He had every right to hang on to that rope. You have every right to go anywhere you want to go without a mask. He had a right to hang on to that rope. You have the right to come and go as you please, anywhere, however you want to. But can we make decisions based not on what's my right and what makes me comfortable, but can we make decisions based on what is best for my neighbor? I want to leave you with two challenges and we're done. This week, beginning today, I want to challenge you on two levels. One, I challenge you this week to love enough to watch out for your neighbor's well-being. There will be times when it doesn't seem fair. Life is messy. Get over it. I want to challenge you to love enough to watch out for your neighbor's well-being. And the second challenge is even tougher. Are you ready? I challenge you, starting today, 
to sincerely ask Jesus to show you anything that is coming between you and him. You say, there's nothing between me and Jesus. I've been a Christian forever. I got it. We're good. Me and Jesus, we're like that. I can't tell you how many times I hear that a week. Me and Jesus, we're like that. I get it. But did you realize that the rich young ruler that day also thought he had it all together and he thought he and God were like this until Jesus showed him the one thing that was keeping him apart? Would you have the spiritual courage this week to accept that challenge? Say, Jesus, show me anything in my life that is pulling me in a different direction or getting in between me and you. I challenge you to ask Jesus to show you what those are. The challenges might get messy, but I promise you, if you'll accept the challenges, it'll be worth it.